Hey everybody, it's David Pluff. Welcome to Campaign HQ. I'm actually recording this on Thursday, June 4th. So who knows what will happen between now and when you're listening to this. Probably things we couldn't imagine or couldn't predict. <laughs> so my intro will be pretty short just because of the, the time lapse. But I think what, and this will relate to, to my guest today, all that's happening in the country brings into stark relief how important this election is. We've talked about this election every week on this program and its historical significance seems to keep rising in terms of the most elections in history. But what's clear is today, fences were being added all around the White House, more troops, most disturbably, uh, folks in military gear with automatic weapons who were not identified, we still know who they are, are roaming our nation's capital. It's a state of lawlessness. Trump uh, has, has taken to tweeting out law and order, but what's most important is rule of law, and that's on the ballot and is under great duress right now. We heard from President Obama on Wednesday, June 3rd, and um, I thought the contrast between Trump and Obama, not surprisingly, was massive, but what was really interesting was just Obama focused on policies. You know, what could we do at the local level to improve policing practices? You know, not phony photo ops and attacks. He really focused on inspiring us and uh, rather than instigating and really focused on community and not combat. Uh, and Trump, like you know, so often, he's living in a fantasy world. Uh, he and Ivanka and Sean Hannity and Donald Trump Jr., you know, they're all trying to suggest that there's not legitimate protesters out there, that uh, this is all violent and, you know, Trump has handled this perfectly well and the photo op wasn't a photo op and the gassing of our citizens wasn't gassing our citizens. It's like we can see these things with our own eyes. We know what happened. Now, the truth is, sadly, in our country, there's probably 38 to 40 percent of the people that are going to believe whatever Donald Trump or Sean Hannity or Laura Ingram say. That's just the reality. But, you know, I do think you're starting to see an increasingly number of people who are understanding that delta between the reality, what comes out of our president's mouth and the reality of what they're seeing in their streets and the communities. You see, one of the things that's striking to me is, you know, every state, pretty much every community uh, is having people peaceably gather of every race and every age. It's such a powerful moment to call for change. And my sense is that this is not just um, a moment. It's going to last. I think it's going to affect this election this November. I think you're going to see a lot of people working next year at the county level and at the state level on community policing reform. And it's really inspiring to see all that out there. So the election matters as much as anyone we've ever had. And so I really wanted to talk to someone today to talk about the actual execution of the election. I had Mark Elias on a few weeks ago, who was an election expert. I, I thought that was a great tutorial about, you know, our election systems in various states, some of the opportunities, some of the barriers. But our guest today is Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson from Michigan, a core battleground state, someone who's gotten uh, attacked by Donald Trump for having the temerity to suggest that they want to execute a sound election that allows enough people to vote by mail but also provide for better procedures on election day about what the state of play is in Michigan, what she's concerned about, where some of the gaps are, what she's seeing in other parts of the country. Because at the end of the day, for all the ads and all of Trump's ridiculous tweets and all the external events and the debates and everything that's going to happen, this comes down to election day and a big part of election day and the weeks leading into it when people can vote by mail or vote early or make sure they meet registration deadlines is, can they do that? Because somebody saying they support you in a poll 
or in their Facebook conversations, doesn't matter if it doesn't materialize in vote. It's all about votes. And, you know, before you even get to partisanship, like we just want everybody to vote, no matter how they're going to vote. We want to make that as easy as possible. But as you think about beating Donald Trump, it's going to be incredibly important with all the barriers that are going to be thrown up, all the disinformation that people have the ability to fight through that. And that state election officials and local election officials have anticipated the disinformation, the increased number of people are going to want to vote by mail. I live in California now, Governor Newsom just announced today an executive order to dramatically increase the number of polling locations, which is so incredibly important. Of all our public policy challenges, this one's pretty straightforward. You can know almost with an eerie degree of certainty using prior voting data and modeling what a presidential year turnout would look like in every precinct in every state. Okay, how many people do you think are going to vote early, vote by mail? How many will be there on election day? And how do you put forward the number of precinct voting locations polling equipment and workers to handle that. So if one precinct has 50, that's a different answer. If one precinct's gonna have 5,000, you need to flex capacity to make that an easier experience for people so they're not standing in line for hours. So I'm, I'm really excited to speak to Secretary of State Benson, who prior to becoming Secretary of State was the Dean of Wayne State Law School. She was actually the youngest woman ever to lead a top 100 law school in United States history. Deep background in the law, she, uh, has been very active in running nonprofits, was considered a really renowned election expert before she became Michigan Secretary of State. So she's someone who knows what she's doing, uh, knows what we need to do to put on a, a free and fair and well-subscribed election this November. And I'm also eager to talk to her about kind of what the ideal state is as we get past this election. How do we build a more perfect election system, which is a very important part of how do we build and strive for that more perfect union. So I hope you enjoy the conversation. Well, Donald Trump's favorite Secretary of State, Jocelyn Benson, thank you for joining us. <laughs> it's a pleasure. I want to talk elect about elections. It is curious. He's uh, had some pointed words for you, certainly uh, uh, somewhat infamously, uh, your friend and Governor Gretchen Whitmer. He, he does seem to have a problem with strong women, whether they be elected officials or journalists. Yeah, certainly. He also seems to have a problem ensuring accurate information is getting out there, <laughs> which was my immediate reaction to that. Just making sure that whoever his audience is, hears the truth and the accurate information about what we're doing in Michigan. And so, you know, the need to correct the record, um, you know, was, was in my view, the, one of the most important things to, to take care of immediately once I saw his, his tweet. Of course. So um, Michigan, like the, the, you know, the core likely six battleground states, I think, you know, we may see some change there, but the core six, um, you know, all do have vote by mail, mm -hmm. um, you know, different uh, approaches, you know, some may be closer to what we'd consider perfect. Others still need some work. But talk a little bit about your election this time in Michigan. Um, you obviously are going to have more people interested in vote by mail, yeah. uh, in early vote, but you still need to anticipate uh, election day. Our, I live in California now. Governor Newsom signed an executive order today to dramatically increase the number of polling locations just to use math and modeling, <laughs> you know, to anticipate supply. So right. you have the demand to keep lines down. Just tell us how you're planning to execute you know, which will in any scenario be a complicated election. Right. I think, you know, it's interesting that elections are often run by elected officials or partisan um, election administrators. But, um, you know, because to me, the the art of running a efficient 
effective, accessible, and secure election is all about data. Uh, you know, what does the data tell us about what voters want, how they want to express their choices? Um, what does the data tell us about, you know, the best way to secure our machines, to secure our ballots? Uh, and, um, and, and what does the data tell us about, you know, how voters are going to, you know, want to get the results of the elections or how the public is going to want to get the results. So to me, we, you know, the data driven leadership that, that I and, and many of my colleagues on both sides of the aisle try to bring to the secretary of state position is really critical and really underscores the, the work of an effective election official. Um, and has it really informed all of our work uh, in Michigan thus far, our policy advocacy and, and our preparation for um, for November uh, and, 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 you know, and uh, also our ability to run elections in the midst of a pandemic, which has been um, something we successfully did in May uh, and, you know, are prepared if we need to, to do it again in the fall. Right. So talk about data. So do you have a sense, you know, uh, you know, when you model out how many people may vote by mail this time, that leaves X number of people voting on Election Day and every precinct's different. Some are large, some aren't. Is there a delta between what you know and what you like to do when you think about machines and polling locations and, you know, election workers? Because there's the, the data, which is I'm so happy to hear that. That's so incredibly important. But then, like, do you have the opportunity to really execute on it fully? We do with enough partnerships and resources. Uh, I think one of the things that's both inspiring to me, but also one of our greatest challenges is that a lot of the solutions to um, address challenges that you see oftentimes in elections falling short of our expectations, the solutions are out there. They've been developed by other states, by experts, and it's something that I saw in my past work as a voting rights advocate, as a dean of a law school, as, an, as a uh, voting rights academic, someone who taught this work for a living, it, you see, a lot of the ideas, innovative or otherwise, have been circulated, have been tested, have been implemented. And so a lot of it is just getting that information to the doers, to the implementers, and making sure they have the resources and the technology to actually um, implement those ideas. Uh, and, and that's a lot of what I've tried to do as, as Secretary of State, bring experts to our state to inform us on how to secure our processes and ensure their accessibility, how to educate voters effectively and all the rest. Uh, and uh, But, you know, where we fall short of meeting those goals, it's when there's a resource gap in order, in you know, in terms of how we, um, or a partnership gap, because partnerships can, can be resourceful, um, that, that, you know, may hold us back from actually achieving our full, our full goals of what we'd like to do and the type of elections we want to deliver to our voters. Some examples are, you know, one is the fact that in Michigan, voters passed an amendment to our state constitution in 2018 to make us a vote by mail state, uh, where every citizen has the right to vote by mail. Now, already about a third of our voters were voting by mail in our excuse only absentee system prior to 2018. And then because voters overwhelmingly voted for this change, it was not imposed on them by a legislature. It was voted by voters. They're already in some ways prepared to now take advantage. They know about this uh, option. They've, they've, they've deliver it themselves. So we can anticipate, though, um, that the, the will, the education will be there among voters wanting to vote by mail, certainly heightened by the pandemic this fall. And that means, whereas in the past, we've had our infrastructure be able to handle 1 million of, you know, 3 million voters, uh, votes cast, let's say about a third, um, done by mail, we're anticipating now that that number will double or possibly even close to triple uh, in this fall's election so that we now need to build an infrastructure that can manage and process 
three times as many in some jurisdictions ballots sent through the mail than in past high turnout presidential elections. Uh, and that to me is quite concerning. But again, that's, that, and all that is just data. That's basically on projections, on voter behavior thus far, on what we've seen in our local May elections. Right. Um, and so, you know, in a perfect world, we'd simply go to our state and federal government and say, okay, we're going to need more machines, more people, and more time to process our ballots. Um, because we're going to have two to three times as more than we had in the past being sent to central locations uh, and needing to be processed. Uh, unfortunately, in a political, highly politicized environment, it's hard to actually then get a <laughs> get those resources, get that support, get that response back. Um, and that, to me, is really the biggest frustration of my job, that we can't deliver on the solutions we know exist because oftentimes of political or partisan reasons. So in Michigan, um, my recollection is in 2016, the last presidential election, um, overall, I think there was about 4,800,000 votes cast, something like that. Correct. Do you have some sense of what you think we're looking like in 2020? Uh, an increase, I'd imagine, of some sort. But what do you think the range is of what overall turnout could be? And then it sounds like a, a, you know, a very healthy percentage of that you are anticipating uh, to end up being folks who vote by mail. Yes, I think we... It's going to vary location to location. We anticipate in some jurisdictions as many as 80 to 90 percent of ballots will be cast through the mail. Um, in other jurisdictions, it may be closer to 50 percent. I think across the board statewide, we're anticipating at least 50 percent, if not two thirds of the electorate will be voting by mail. Um, that's based on what all the data so far has showed, um, has indicated. And, and then if you, you know, add what we anticipate being a, a higher than than typical turnout, um, you know, we're looking at the at, and we're anticipating, you know, as many as three million ballots being sent through the mail. And this is this is again being handled by systems that you know in, in the past have handled a third of that. Right. Um, and what well, what that also means is less people voting in person, which is actually good for this year because we want to avoid crowds and lines in every election, but certainly now. Uh, and um, but that that at the same time that doesn't. Um, mitigate or minimize our need to provide safe in-person voting options as well, even if significantly less people are using them and voting in person. You think it's possible the overall turnout in the state, um, just from a raw voting you know, number standpoint, you think we could go as high as like 5,500,000, yeah. which would be historic? Yeah. I mean, I would say, I, yeah, I could see a scenario where, where we've got 5 million people voting 3 million by mail. Mm-hmm. I think that's um, likely where we'll get to, um, and may, you know, but um, and that's certainly what we're building out for. That's what we're preparing for. We've got 7.7 million registered voters in our state, so at a, um, you know, where you've got, you know, let's say 5.5 million turnout, which um, is, is, you know, again, what we want to plan for, um, and and then you know, two thirds voting by mail. Um, that's uh, you know, at least three, if not more, million people right, maybe more. voting by mail. Right. And, and and again, remember, this is the, the infrastructure that in 2016 handled just over a million ballots sent through the mail. Um, so we, you know, so that's um, that, that's that's one piece of it. And, and the, the, the other layer um, that was underscored in our um, spring presidential elections is not just more people voting by mail, but you now also in Michigan can register to vote in person on election day. And we saw in college communities around the state a significant influx of college students uh, registering and voting right there in March. Uh, and we are, are planning for that as well, which also takes additional resources. But, but under 
Michigan law, and this is notable, the same clerks who are getting this influx of ballots through the mail and processing them in their offices, that's also where people have to register to vote in person. So we're recognizing that there's going to be, in, in particularly in college communities, an additional stress on the election administrators who will have to have staff processing three times as many ballots sent through the mail, and that same staff also processing on election day a significant number, maybe thousands of people coming in and registering to vote in person uh, and then voting right there. So lots of different things that, again, we we can prepare for, we can build out for, but resources and partnerships are, are the key in making sure that we're able to do that effectively. So what's interesting about that is, so in, in places where you do expect a surge of same-day registration, even though same-day voting is going to be down, you know, that could add to lines, right? And Correct. So I'm curious, uh, when you when you talk about the clerks, you know, how many, or I guess not numerically, but, you know, do the clerks have the ability to flex and add um, staff, you know, even if it's just people are going to work for them for a few months, or are they going to have to do mm-hmm. all of this with their existing personnel? Well, that's what we're assessing right now. Uh, we're talking with clerks in the communities that we anticipate the, the, the burden will be greatest, the resource need will be the highest, to just say, like, where is the gap? And, you know, how many more computers will you need that can access the qualified voter file to register people to vote right there? How many more high-speed tabulators will you need to process, you know, the number of ballots that you'll be getting? How many more people do you need? Can we hire seasonal employees? Um, and, you know, so we're, we're um, identifying those needs and for the most part um, are going to be able to fill them either through the state resources that we have or hopefully in partnership with local governments. But again, this underscores like just, just how helpful federal funding is and federal partnerships are right. in that regard. Because if, if I, if we received exact, you know, $40 million from the CARES fund as opposed to 11 million, I would not have to worry. It would be one less thing I'd have to worry about to, to get that staff, get those machines, get, you know, um, the computers, get the technology to our local clerks um, and figure out right, right now I have to figure out how to fund it and, what choices to make and what to prioritize. And, and that is an additional stressor on all of us as we try to just do our best to prepare for November. And do you have, what's your sense of if you're going to get additional assistance out of Washington? Oh, you know, cautiously optimistic, but also realistic. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, right. Um, you know, our budget, our plan is to do what we can with what we have already. Um, and we're also benefiting from the fact that a lot of bus- you know, business owners and, and other, others in the philanthropic community have reached out to say, you know, can we donate masks and gloves for your election workers or just other in-kind support that can be provided through um, private, public-private partnerships to help fill some of those gaps? Um, and, um, and, or just, you know, people volunteering their time. I mean, there, there's lots of ways in which we can, in the absence of financial resources, meet the needs of our democracy. It just, um, is harder to do so. And it create we spend a lot of time trying to figure out how to do it. And I'd much rather spend that time just, you know, implementing the solutions as opposed to knowing the solutions and trying to figure out how to make it happen. Um, but, um, but, you know, all of it is, is, is possible and doable. And we just, like anyone, we work with what we're given and try to do the best with it. So it's an American tragedy and you're doing heroic work in these circumstances.
So I'm curious, not from a partisan standpoint, but you know, you 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 uh, have a um, long and deep history in terms of um, you know studying elections. Your election expert before you became Secretary of State. Uh-huh. So this isn't from a Democrat or Republican standpoint. When you think about whether it's you know reminding people about registration deadlines, you know absentee ballot uh, deadlines, uh, you know if they're polling places, just that pure information. And obviously, you know campaigns, Democrat and Republican, do their own communication, but but state and local government does. What do you see that's working? How is social media? change that. I'm just curious because I do think I'm always, you know, when I used to be active in elections, I was always reminded every time there's a lot of people you're counting on at the end to vote. And, you know, we as society want everybody to vote regardless of how they vote, who literally are just lacking information. I didn't know early vote hours had changed or, you know, I I didn't know the absentee uh, ballot deadline was today. Just I'm curious what you've learned about just reaching people. Um, The voter education through trusted voices and authentic means, I guess you could say, is really critical. Um, and and, to, and to, again, use data to kind of figure out what the best message is and what's the best way of communicating and delivering that message to the person who needs to hear it. Is it a sports figure um, who can, you know, inspire and educate? Is it um, a government official who can send a piece of mail? We know the data shows, you know, mail is more likely to be open if it, if it comes from a government official versus an advocacy organization or a campaign. So, you know, trying to figure that out um, on one end, what's the most effective message and means of communicating that message and what's the most trusted voice. That's a lot of what I've been doing since I took office to try to connect with community groups and leaders and other voices um, in the in the lead up to this year and trying to in, in preparation for not just proactively educating citizens about their rights and how to exercise them, but also countering misinformation and efforts to deceive our citizens as well about those very same things. Um, what has most recently kind of added or to the complication or, or what I've been made aware of is one, the uncertainties of the coronavirus pandemic and how much more education we need to do right. to clarify and provide certainty to voters about, you know, how to vote, what their choices are and all of that amidst the heightened rhetoric that we're hearing right now about vote by mail and other things. Um, and then, you know, all, all on top of that is, um, you know, measuring success which to me comes down to, you know, are people receiving their ballots, returning their ballots, accurately completing them, and then are they being counted? And one of my biggest concerns for this fall as Michigan and other states transition to a vote-by-mail system, and meaning we think many more people will be voting by mail in Michigan than ever before, and I think that holds true in, in other states as well, um, is how do you minimize voter error? Mm-hmm. When people vote in person, and I know you know this, when people vote in person and they don't complete their ballot effectively, at least in Michigan, the machine will spit it back out and say, voter error, fix this. They can get a new ballot, fix it right there, and, and, and feed it back into the machine, and it will be counted. When someone doesn't complete a ballot correctly or doesn't sign the envelope that they return it in, um, it, it's harder to correct that, if not impossible, depending on what the error is. And so, um, you know, part of the reason why voter education is so important is to minimize the potential for spoiled ballots and uncounted ballots that otherwise contain valid votes um, this fall. Um, And I'm deeply concerned about um, a scenario in which we have a close election and there's a significant number of ballots that are valid, but for whatever reason, that are valid votes, um, but for whatever reason, under the law or otherwise, we can't count them right. um, because, you know, they were mailed in and we couldn't correct them in time. So to me that, you know, voter education takes on a heightened importance in, in a moment like this where the 
ensuring people are accurately and correctly completing their ballots takes on a whole new, you know, could, 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 you know, determine or inform the outcome of many elections on the ballot. Well, it's such an important point, and my hope is uh, all of your fellow secretaries of state, Democrat, Republican, and anything in between take that to heart because, you know, I live in California. Um, you know, the ballot design is not user-friendly, mm-hmm. uh, and I've worked in politics, and it can mm-hmm. still be difficult for me to make sure, <laughs> you know, that I've right. uh, voted properly, signed everything. So I do think that level of education is enormously important. Um, I'm curious, so when you think, and, and listen, we have sadly, you know, political realities and turbulence, we have funding uh, disparities, but if we were to just be optimistic for a minute and live in a world that doesn't exist, <laughs> what to you would be the the best way to execute our systems here in America? For, you know, starting with voter registration, you know, a lot of states now allow people to pre, pre-register 17, uh, automatic voter registration, uh, you know, number of polling locations per voter. I know that this is like fantasy world, but like, what do we need to build towards here? Like, what's the ideal? Um, well, yeah, first I'll, I'll just say, and I've been thinking about this throughout our conversation, just how ironic it is that we have to struggle I mean, choosing who has power in our country, which is really that's what elections are about. It's choosing an allocation of power in this country, who makes decisions for all of us. How ironic is it that we have to struggle so much to make that yeah. um, work effectively and how frustrating, like it shouldn't be this hard to do what is the most important act of a citizen um, to determine who runs our country and who runs our states and who runs our local government. Like it, it, the fact that we don't prioritize more through our funding and through you know other resources, making sure this works well and effective and accurately boggles my mind. Um, and it's um, and it's been a struggle, as we know, since the beginning of our country and the founding of our democracy to make our democracy live up to those ideals of those who create those who founded it. Um, and and so you know I just think like want to editorialize yes. it for a second and just say, like, it shouldn't be this hard to get this right. The answers <laughs> are out there. So how do we get it right? Well, first, like, voter, regist- voter registration, which we know originated in the sort of Jim Crow era as a way to add an additional burden <laughs> to people in, in uh, prior to them casting their, their vote. Um, now it's sort of become part of what we do in every state other than North Dakota. Um, but what I found now in Michigan is we've implemented Election Day registration, online registration, and automatic voter registration in just the past year. Um, since I took office, uh, is is that um, you, we have policies in place, and they need to be universally in place to um, make sure registration is not a barrier to voting and is only used to as an accurate tool to ensure you know the the accuracy of the outcome and um, and and to make things run more smoothly on election day. Um, I have found automatic voter registration uh, to be. Um, like overseeing its implementation, you may have seen this in California, um, to be one of the most effective ways at both increasing the accuracy of the list um, and also ensuring universal registration for everyone. I mean, no one should be blocked from voting because they're not registered. No eligible voter should be blocked from voting simply because of a registration snafu. Um, and automatic registration helps us get there. Pre-registration, um, when someone turns 16, is something that eases um, you know, the, our ability towards universal voter registration. Um, but, um, but to me, the most effective policy that we've been able to implement is automatic voter registration when done so effectively. And, um, and, and we've, we've benefited from learning from, from states who've done it already about how to do it here in Michigan well. Um, so that's the, the first piece. The second is, is how people get their ballots. Um, I think, it, obviously, it's a good election administration is a dance between what voters want and what the system 
provides. And in, in many cases, voters do not yet want or are ready for the ballot delivery model that California, um, Colorado, and, and several other states have set up. But when, when that, that aligns, when the voter education and, and kind of awareness of it aligns with the system, it can work right, right well. And what I mean by that is in California, the effort to get to a model where you are now, where you can do this ballot delivery as the governor um, did through executive order, actually came through many stages with right. many counties automatically delivering ballots first. So voters were already set up for it. They're already aware of it. The infrastructure at the local level is prepared for it. And that is really important. I realize I'm, I'm mixing up implementation with like the policies, which I should just simply tell you what policies are needed, but I can't. No, you can't. Right. In my mind, because good implementation is, is critical. But so, you know, again, that automatic ballot delivery is the, is the right policy. It's the best policy. It's the best model, but it only works um, under certain circumstances as the states who've implemented it successfully have shown us. Um, and, um, but, but what ballot delivery does is, is empower the voter to decide and choose how to return their ballot. Do they do it in person? Do they do it through the mail? Um, and give them plenty of time to complete their ballot. So, you know, that to me, um, universal policies to enable universal voter registration um, so that every eligible voter is able to vote uh, and and then policies to ensure ease of ballot delivery and return um, are, you know, to me, the, the two um, structural pieces that make a, a, a successful democracy. And again, the states that, that have got these in place demonstrate that through the high turnout and high levels of voter engagement. Um, and then the last thing I'll just emphasize, though, is, is the importance of valuable and reliable information. That, we can't, that an engaged electorate is not enough. It has to be a well-informed electorate as well. And so, um, you know, engagement can come through um, the infrastructure being, being built to make voting convenient and secure, but the information, the way people get information about how to vote who's on the ballot, and all the rest is so important to get right. And since taking office and being involved in this work, I have been really, um, as Secretary of State, I've been really inspired by how impactful a well-run election system can lead to greater engagement. But I've been very disillusioned about the challenges we have in our country and in our state of effectively informing the public about how to cast their vote um, and also just, you know, the information around what's at stake in an election and, and what's true and what's not. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm deeply concerned. I don't, I don't, I'm deeply concerned about um, the evolution of, of that and how we create and how we ensure voters are well informed um, uh, about their choices, about the truth in, in the years to come. We've got a lot of work to do there. So let's stay on that topic for a minute. How concerned are you that we will see in the fall, whether it's done domestically, um, by shadowy groups or by folks outside of the United States, um, you know, purposely trying to confuse voters. So in Michigan, you know, getting Facebook advertising saying, actually, you know, the, the deadline for absentee ballots has changed and here's what it is, or your polling location has now changed and it's, you know, an inaccurate message. I mean, that's pretty insidious stuff, but I assume it's something you probably have to plan for. Um, even though you are just administering an election, you're not a political campaign, you do have some responsibility and you've spoken quite powerfully about how important you believe it is to, you know, inform voters and educate and give them facts. So that's got to be like, as you sort of you know, scenario plan out the fall, thinking through what could be coming over the transom like that, as sad as it is, must be part of your your table exercises. Absolutely, particularly in the in the six states that we know are going to be under the greatest microscope this year. Misinformation is going to be, I should say, countering misinformation is one of the most significant aspects of securing our elections and our election security work this year. 
um, as I prepare for, for November, we really um, have sort of organized things into three pillars. One, voter education, making sure voters are educated proactively about their rights and how to exercise them. Two, infrastructure, just all the stuff we've talked about, about building that infrastructure to return ballots, receive ballots, count ballots. But the third pillar is countering misinformation, and it deserves a pillar all in itself because um, we have to devote resources to it and partnerships to make sure that, to, to, one, to anticipate um, a significant amount of mis- misinformation flowing into our state uh, through various means, um, from various voices, um, social media and elsewhere, um, that, are, that are meant to disrupt our elections, confuse our voters, and sow seeds of doubt in the integrity of the process um, and, and cause voters to doubt their, and have, lose confidence in, in the, the elections and the outcome of the elections themselves. Um, so I'm deeply concerned about that, in part because we know it's going to happen and we know we have to counter it, but two, because the variables are so great, meaning, you know, I, I know how to, and we can figure through data and otherwise how to effectively educate our voters. We can know how to effectively build an infrastructure but the misinformation, there's so many variables, so many unknowns in terms of what's going to be said, how it's going to be said, um, how impactful it's going to be, and how you counter all those things. Um, it's a steep hill to climb uh, to ensure we are fully prepared to counter it. Um, but to me, it is um, you know, at the top of our list in terms of election security um, issues this year. When we talk about election security, it's about protecting the hacking of voters' minds, protecting voters against the ha- attempts to hack their minds with misinformation, uh, and um, and it is just as important we protect our voters from that as much as we protect our machines and everything else in our system from efforts to um, you know um, cause problems <laughs> within them. Your punch list is pretty enormous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So one thing that strikes me is just, um, you know, so much of our society now, um, you know, is geared towards speed and efficiency, right? Um, You know, press a button and get a car in three minutes, order food, it's there in 15 minutes, you know, you can do TS pre to, uh, you know, lines, you even you see a lot of innovation in DMVs to cut down wait times. And then you see people forced and you see these heroic people, you know, waiting in line three, four five hours, and they'll do it. And I think they're going to do it this November. But I do worry a little bit, particularly with younger voters, it is so discordant with how they live the rest of their lives, right? Yeah. Which in many respects, and you know, to, to your earlier comments, like, voting should be the easiest thing we do in our society. And it's one of the hardest things. I'm just curious, like your thoughts on that. Because I, I do think I worry that if it doesn't get better over time, you are going to lose some people out of the bottom of the funnel, as they say out here. Uh, yeah, I think it's a reflection of, of, of just lack of resources. Again, I know this is, I've seen this more than anything, but when you look at innovation and what is leading innovation, and, and, and I say this is, you know, prior to, um, prior to becoming Secretary of State, I worked I ran a nonprofit in sports, and prior to that, I ran a law school. And so I, I worked in these other industries where you saw how innovation, how private in, investment um, can lead. And I, and I should just say resources <laughs> instead of private investment. Right. That's not the relevant piece. It's just funds and investment and priorities and innovation um, and best practices and just all the things that, in many ways, private enterprise and um, you know entrepreneurship. Um, yields, which are sort of good solutions, robust solutions. And when you look at whether it's meal to food delivery or banking or, you know, all these ways in which private industry, because they want to, you know, 
um, keep their customers and, and, and succeed in the marketplace. They're, they're innovating and they're succeeding and they're investing in innovation. We don't do that in government. We don't do that um, in elections as much as we should. And I think if we did, if we invested resources, if we prioritized innovation um, and, um, you know, that same sort of, you know, solution-driven, data-driven mindset that can yield, that, that has yielded great innovations in other industries, we would see that same level of, I think, efficiency and innovation in democracy, but we, we don't. And, um, and so I've, I've tried to, to change that and bring a level of, of innovation into how we, we do things, but certainly um, what, what enables innovation is, is you know, um, uh, funding <laughs> and resources and development and, and great minds coming together, putting politics aside and just trying to do the right thing. So we kind of good leadership as well. Um, and so, yeah, I, th- I think that in, in so many ways, um, we, we must figure out how to innovate um, and develop innovative systems of, of running democracy, um, but our resources and, and lack of prioritizing it and the hyper-politization of the process makes it hard to do so. Would you, I'm curious, and this is not, we have to know, it's so essential to the entire enterprise. Um, so this is not a question for this year. It's probably not a question for 22 or 24 but and you know there are very profound and and valid security concerns but i mean do you think at some point in this generation or you know end of the decade will you see and there's been some of this but do you think you'll see more widespread testing of digital voting or do you think the security issues there um are, are not solved to the extent that, you know, we could even try and do that in a broader way. It's hard for me to, to envision a way in which the security issues would be solved to allow for Internet voting, especially at a time when um, the hacking of elections and misinformation and efforts to disrupt our elections is so significant. Um, so but of course, like anything, just because you don't see it or can't envision it doesn't mean it's not possible. Um, and I certainly think we should continue innovating and exploring, not just to ensure, you know, ease of participation for our voters overseas and our military community serving overseas, of which, you know, that, um, you know, the technology has been particularly important to allow electronic return of ballots and those sorts of things. Um, but, you know, certainly increasing the efficiency of, of how we run elections um, is, is going to be, um, and, and innovating um, and, and using technology to do so um, is going to be critical in, in, in the years ahead. Um, in, in, again, in past work that I did, we're always trying to think ahead. What does the legal industry look like in 10 years? What, are, what does sports look like in 10, 20 years? And let's build towards that. Let's work towards that. Um, we don't really see that same level of thinking um, in the world of election administration across the board, in part because the people lead, you know, you're not, you rarely see a scenario where someone is running elections as a secretary of state, at least for more than a decade. Um, and so there's, it sort of yields like a lot of things in politics, sometimes a more myopic way of, of decision-making, especially when you've got immediate elections every two years or few months uh, that you need to prepare for and execute. Um, but there's certainly a need for that more thoughtful approach um, and strategic approach to, you know, what, to answering questions about what democracy is going to look like and then working to implement that. And, and then, you know, 
to, to make, not to belabor, but just to emphasize that's one of the reasons why state and local governments can, um, you know, be a tool, an, an incubator, a laboratory for democracy um, in, in testing things out and piloting things out. Because the, the optimist would, would look at a Colorado and, or a California or an Oregon or a Washington or a Minnesota and recognize that many of the innovations that have now made it slowly nationwide, like online voter registration, originally started in the state of Washington or in a state that, you know, you had someone innovate it and work it and, and figure out the problems and troubleshoot it. And then right. now then it can be replicated. So um, it's not all gloom and doom. There's certainly the more states are able to innovate and develop innovative ways of delivering democracy and localities too, um, urban areas, Los Angeles, Denver, um, you see that happening. Um, we have some opportunities to innovate and develop some ways of modernizing our elections. Um, and, and what history has shown us so far is that really does usually come at the local level and before it, and then it's tested before it extrapolates out. Well, one thing, um, and I think your um, approach here should be a magnet for people. You know, we've seen um, a, a really great trend of younger attorneys, you know, choosing to run for district attorney offices themselves or, you know, wanting to work on the staff as line prosecutors, not necessarily because they're going to do it for their career, but they say, you know, this is a good contribution to society. And yeah. I'll do I'd love to see people work in offices like yours and clerk's offices, you know, some may make it a career, some may not, but hopefully it's a place where people um, understand the import. And if they've got talents that would match to, you know, I think some of your really yeah. great observations about where we need innovation would be great. I'm curious, um, you know, the, the president did shower you with, I, I assume, some unwanted attention. But mm-hmm. but as you mentioned, the most important thing there is to to fire back with facts. So uh, what's interesting to me about this is, first of all, you know, the core battleground states in 2020 that will determine his fate um, all have, you know, various forms of vote by mail. Pennsylvania being, you know, the latest entrant. Um, so, you know, presumably someone like him is going to want his supporters to feel good about voting by mail. You know, all the literature out there, political science literature, research, I know this firsthand from working in politics. The notion that one party has an advantage over another mm. vote by mail is just nonsense. Like, right. you know, a better campaign may do a better job, D or R. So that to me is an important thing we have to correct, which is, you know, this is something that does not benefit one part or the other. Uh, it's something that, you know, generally a candidate who's doing better will do better in mail just as they will at the election. So, but in are some states like Florida where the Republicans have had a historic advantage on vote by mail. So I'm just curious, like what, what do you think the motivation is here? Because I can't logically understand it other than to sow confusion, I guess, but I'm not sure that benefits one party or the other. Yeah, well, working from the assumption that we're all dealing with the same set of facts and the full set of information that, we, you know, we know that, but maybe not everyone, you know, I, I, I think, um, you know, we know the data shows that, Voting by mail, and, and anyone who looks at the data knows that voting by mail is widely accepted, embraced by individuals on both sides of the on of the um, of the aisle. Right. Um, and we've certainly seen that in Michigan in various different ways. Um, but you know, one, not everyone is always working with the same universe or full, with, I should just say not the same, but with, with the full universe of facts <laughs> that we may not. Right. So, um, and that can you, but, in, and, and instead may presuppose that, um, you know, another data point that we know about vote by mail elections, um, high turnout that it often, that anytime, lo and behold, you make voting more convenient, it turnout increases, which is a great thing. I think <laughs> regarding, you know, and so if you, if you take some of the, 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 the subsequent statements that have been made um, by various members of, of the, the Republican party of saying, if, 
turnout increases that makes it more difficult for the Republican Party to win elections. I think there's been a number of statements made about that, um, which um, to me is kind of also antithetical to democracy that, you know, we should want everyone to vote. And um, there's nothing um, there, there is nothing inherently wrong and there is only inherent good um, when every voice is heard and everyone is voting. Like that has to be a basic norm and value that we all accept. But to the extent that people don't see that or believe that and think high turnout affects their ability to have power or maintain power, um, then yeah, that could lead someone to attack any, any method of voting that would lead to higher turnout. So I'm just speculating. But. <laughs> right. No, that's all we can do is speculate. No, and I understand that there's that simple view, but just the history of election shows us, um, you know, it's like it ten, it it always, um, you know, it's good to remind people that you very rarely see like a bad candidate in a good campaign. Like good candidates tend to have good campaigns, and then good candidates who run good campaigns who have the right timing when they run do well on things like vote by mail and fundraising, you know, and and volunteer recruitment. Like one follows the other, but yeah. uh, but it's interesting. Well, listen, Secretary of State Benson, thank you for your uh, really terrific and heroic service to your state and the country. Um, I know you're also an avid marathon runner, and just <laughs> listening to you, you're having to run this marathon at sprint pace yeah. uh, because you know before we know it, you know people are going to be getting ballots and registration deadlines. So, um, the, you know, the election is right uh, upon us. And I'm sure you feel that pressure more than pretty much anybody in the country. So we're so glad that you're in this post and for all your service prior to this. But uh, I hope this is, I think this is going to be a really good overview of people about both what you're doing in Michigan, but how our elections operate, um, where some of the gaps are, um, and what are the, some of the things we have to be watching out, particularly as it relates to misinformation, you know, heading into the fall. Yeah, thank you. And thank you for having me and all the work that you've done as well to improve democracy throughout your career. It's great to be here and talking with you. And and really, I think, you know, the most important thing for everyone to know and every listener to know is that there's work we all can do um, to improve democracy in our state and our country. And it starts with being an educated and informed voter, but then also ensuring everyone in your network is similarly educated and informed. And um, to me, um, you know, that is work that we all must do at, at a higher level now more than ever before. Um, but I think, you know, if, if we, if we all work together to, um, to improve democracy, that at least history shows that that's what'll get things done. I'm so glad you mentioned that because this is not just on you. This needs to be on all of us, right? That's right. Which is that's effort. before you get into talking about ads or debates or anything like, are you registered? Do you know when to vote? You know, do you understand how to vote by mail? And I presumably also you'd like for people who maybe haven't tried it before, uh, both in Michigan and across the country where this is available, to volunteer to work on Election Day, right? To be part of that amazing moment in our democracy. Yeah, anyone in Michigan can go to michigan.gov slash democracy VP to sign up to be one of our democracy's most valuable players and one of our election workers this November. And many other states have set up similar programs to recruit a strong, talented workforce to help manage and execute and run our elections this year. So it's a great way to be a part of um, protecting democracy in your town and in your state and, uh, and for the future. Well, thank you for that. Thanks again for this conversation and best of luck over the next 21 weeks. Yes, likewise. Well, I want to thank Secretary of State Benson for coming on. 
We should all have a lot of confidence that she's leading election efforts in Michigan. There's other great secretaries of state leading efforts in other states. But it should also scare us just because the complexity of executing an election in a pandemic where you're going to have more people voting by mail, when you're going to have misinformation coming from within our country and outside of their country with the pure aim to confuse people so they miss deadlines or go to the wrong polling location. The secretaries of state like her have such an enormous burden. And at the end, she suggested ways we could all help and we should all pick up that call, be our own spreaders of truth and information about voting in our own communities, volunteer to be an election day worker. In Michigan, you can do that. In many other states, you can to be part of making sure people have as as smooth an experience as they can. So we can't have the entire burden fall on the Jocelyn Bensons of the world. We all have our role to play to make sure basic voting information, not information about Joe Biden or against Donald Trump or not information about how to create a TikTok, as important as all that is, but just basic, you know, meat and potatoes, voting information is incredible. So let's help people like her put forward the kind of election we need to have the kind of turnout this country deserves under very challenging circumstances. So thanks. And we'll be back with you next week. 